celebration. In ancient Israel, God instituted over 90 days per year for Israel to participate in the weekly and monthly annual uh, religious celebrations. And many Israelites in ancient Israel traveled for over a month to and from and during the three annual pilgrim festivals at Jerusalem. In volume six of the testimonies, Ellen White makes this interesting quotation. If the children of Israel needed the benefit of these holy convocations in their time, how much more do we need them in these last days of peril and conflict? Mm -hmm. And then while living in Australia, near Avondale College, Ellen White wrote uh, uh, what I think is a radical appeal to faculty and students at Avondale College, urging them to do more festal celebration. Listen to this quotation. Ellen White writes, shall we not keep holy festivals unto God? Shall we not show that we have some enthusiasm in his service? With the grand ennobling theme of salvation before us, shall we be as cold as statues of marble? If men can become so excited over a match game of cricket or a horse race or over foolish things that bring no good to anyone, how shall we be unmoved with the plan of salvation when it is unfolded before us. Then she says, let the school and the church henceforth have festivals of rejoicing to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, this week, all around the world, our Jewish brothers and sisters are celebrating the eight-day festival called Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And this is the most joyous festival of all the religious year for our Jewish, Jewish brothers and sisters. And now we as Adventists believe that the ceremonial law met its antitype with Jesus and it's no longer mandatory to keep uh, any of the annual feasts. But as spiritual Israel, we have the privilege to savor our Hebrew roots if we choose. As a young pastor in Arizona years ago, I came across the following statement from Ellen White that has revolutionized my worship experience at this time of year. Notice what she wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 540. Well would it be for the people of God at the present time to have a Feast of Tabernacles. Did you catch that? A celebration, a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God to them. Now notice she says, well would it be, not that it's mandatory. She says, a Feast of Tabernacles, not the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is especially relevant for us, and I believe this is why Ellen White pointed to this particular festival. It's the only one that's not yet been completely fulfilled, hmm. the new earth. And so what an appropriate time then when the Feast of Tabernacles is happening for us to have a taste of tabernacles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so are you ready? Are you ready to join me to strip Amen. away your Western reserve and get into the Hebrew <laughs> zest and enthusiasm of ce celebrating these festivals? I invite us to enter into the joy of God's appointed but almost well-nigh forgotten festival, Sukkot. Let's celebrate our heritage. And so let's in our imaginations join the people of Israel back in Jesus' day. Let's pick, well, let's pick 30 AD, the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus celebrated. And let's imagine that we're traveling from various parts of the country surrounding Jerusalem 
and we're singing these one of these 15 songs that are called the songs of ascents from Psalm 120 to 134 that the pilgrims sang as they went up to Jerusalem and thankfully our worship leaders have been preparing one of these songs for us to sing today plus another Adventist pilgrim song worship leaders lead us in this joyous heading to Zion for the feast amen thank you Dr. Davidson and with that thought in mind we invite you to sing with us this first song is called Hinei Matov it's a Hebrew song. Uh, hopefully you can follow with us along. And it comes from the book of Psalm 133, verse 1, that says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters sit, dwell together in oneness. Hinei Matov. Hinei Matov song for us as Seventh-day Adventists, Marching to Zion. This uh, is the equivalent to the Psalms of Ascents in the book of Psalms, uh, this thing. So we just imagine how we are going to go to heaven and how we will be marching to our heavenly, heavenly Zion.
of God, we who have come from different parts around the, the country of Palestine, we have all 
come at the same time onto one of the seven mountains around Jerusalem. And as we look down at the holy city and we see that beautiful temple, we look closer and we see there on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount is that white-robed priest. Can you see him? And there in his hand he has a shofar, the Yemenite shofar, the kudu shofar, and he is calling us to the feast. And so I, I would like, I cannot uh, imitate fully his clarion tones, but I will do my best to call us to the feast. And actually, the place, the very place where he stood when he sounded the shofar in Jesus' day has been recently recovered by archaeologists with the inscription on it, the place for the blowing of the shofar. So when you go to Israel, you can see this. So hear the call, the call to come to celebrate the feast. And then after you hear the four different blasts of the shofar, I invite my worship leaders to come and take a branch, and we'll just do some waving, and you at home, if you want to grab something and just wave and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. We're heading to the feast, so hear the call. Now we need to finish building our sukkah. And so we're grabbing one of these, some of these branches, and if we have others that would like to come up and help us, a few of us, let's wave some branches and say Hosanna. 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 Okay, now we have, I'm glad we've got some tall worship leaders so we can put these up here. We may have to stand on a chair. Hosanna! Okay, I'm going to keep one down. So now, let's all imagine that we are in our sukkahs together. This is the sukkah for us here in chapel, but in your imagination, come and join. And uh, throughout Jerusalem at this time of year, the city is filled with sukkahs in the backyards or on the porches of the people, and they actually take the, uh, uh, the city uh, tree trimmers and trim all the trees at this time of year, so there's plenty of branches to put up on the sukkah. Now, 
We imagine that we're uh, singing songs, reading good food, we're praising God for his blessings. And in fact, COVID-19 cannot stop us from being in our sukkahs together. Thanks to technology, it has provided ready-made virtual sukkah breakout praise tabernacles. How's that? And so I'd like us at this time, I'll let the techies do this, to divide our congregation wherever you may be. You'll be joining a praise breakout tabernacle in each one in your group. Think of one thing to praise God for. Tabernacles is ultimate Thanksgiving Day, Hebrew style. And we'll spend just several minutes doing that, and then you'll come back and we'll have a prayer together in this corporate sukkah. So let's go into our sukkahs and let's praise God. Everyone say something you're thankful for, for what God has done this last year.
let's all bow our head together and pray. Our eternal Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise and we worship your holy name for this festival, for gathering us inside your tabernacle. Lord, as we come together and worship you, we, are, we ask you, Lord, to come and dwell among us, that you fill each of our hearts with your word, that thirsted and hunger soul may fed and be filled with your word. Continue to bless your people, Lord, though we could not be here together. We are far, yet, Lord, your presence can be felt wherever we are. And so we pray for every soul that is asking you earnestly, seeking you. Lord, may you be more close to them. And Lord, may they experience your presence at this moment. We also submit the speaker of this hour at the shadow of your cross. May you hide him, Lord. Let the word that comes out of his mouth, Lord, you break it and give it to us. That it may be nourishing for us that we may grow spiritually in, in you. Lord, forgive our sins and shortcomings. We pray all this in the matchless name of, name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. According to the Torah, once every sabbatical year, the entire Torah, which is the Pentateuch, was read at the, temp at the tabernacles. This year is not a sabbatical year, but we still read from the Torah. We read the description of the Feast of Tabernacle from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 37 to 43. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. Beside the Sabbath of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and beside your vows, And besides all your free offerings, which you give unto the Lord, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, which you have gathered in the fruits of the land, you shall keep a fast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be the Sabbath. On the eighth day shall be the Sabbath. And you shall take you of the first day the boughs of the goodly trees, branches of the palm trees, and boughs of the thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall dwell in the booths seven days, and all that are Israelite born shall dwell in the booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in the booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God.
Today, our Jewish brothers and sisters give themselves a welcome at this time of year by saying Chag Sameach, which means happy feast. So turn to one another there, wherever you may be, and say to one another Chag Sameach, happy festival. The Feast of Tabernacles is the high point of the Jewish year, so much so that they don't even sometimes call it the full name. They just say, the Feast. And they know, yeah, that's the Feast of Tabernacles because it's the crowning festival. It's the most joyous festival of all of the year. In fact, uh, I don't know if any of you have a favorite uh, command. I know you have lots of favorite promises. Do you have a favorite command? Here's my favorite command right here in Leviticus 23:40. You shall rejoice. I like that kind of a command. God loves for us to be happy and rejoicing in him. And so he told them to gather these four kinds of trees, the four species, and uh, even in Jesus' day, they became uh, four specific species, the... Um, the lulav, which was the closed uh, frond of the date palm, and the hadas, which is myrtle. Hadasa means myrtle, uh, Esther's name. And the arava, the willow, the willow branches. We have some willows up here that I've mingled in. I couldn't find a palm tree anywhere. What's wrong with Michigan? It doesn't have palm trees. Anyway, I've got one here that's a fake one. And then the etrog, which is some kind of a... a a lemon or citron. And so in the booths, they would wave these. And in the synagogues, they take a procession around with their lulav, and they wave these celebrations to God. So what's the meaning of all of this? What's the meaning of coming every year, our Jewish brothers and sisters, to dwell in booths for seven days? Well, we read it in the scripture reading. First of all, it was to point them back, back to the time, the 40 years that they spent in booths and tents, wandering through the wilderness, and God protected them. God kept them safe from the, the heat and safe from the cold. They were under his booth, under his pillar of cloud and under his pillar of fire, as well as in their tents. And so it was to remind them of their pilgrimage, for seven days, they were to live in little huts that did not have any roof. So you could see the stars and you could remember God taking care of you during that time. So it was a Thanksgiving celebration. So uh, we've said, let's say we've said Chag Sameach, we've said Hosanna, but this is Jewish Thanksgiving. So I invite you to turn to one another and say Happy Thanksgiving. This festival has everything. Believe me, listen to the next one. Because not only did the booth point backward in the time of Jesus, in the Old Testament times, it pointed forward. According to Amos chapter 9 and verse 11, when the Messiah came, he was to restore the sukkah, restore the booth. He was to be the booth. And so is it any wonder that John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and boothed among us, tabernacled among us, skenade among us. 
Jesus became the booth, the true booth that is our protection, that is our one that, that we can hide under. And what is more, the hints have now been pieced together, and most people are convinced that have studied this, that Jesus was actually born at Feast of Tabernacles time. That this was his birth date. He was probably conceived at Christmas time and then born at Feast of Tabernacles. So now you can turn to one another and say, Merry Christmas! <laughs> all right. <laughs> and it, the new year just started a few days ago, too, so you can also say Happy New Year if you want. All right. You got it. The Feast of Tabernacles was also the time right after Day of Atonement. Last Sabbath, I preached a sermon on the Day of Atonement because that was the Day of Atonement. And now we have gone through Day of Atonement, and of course, Adventists believe we're living in the Day of Atonement all the time. We're experiencing this, but we celebrate it especially once every year, and we get this assurance that God doesn't judge in the sense of condemning any of his people who trust in him. For him to judge is to save, to deliver, to vindicate his people. And so the time of judgment is one that gives us this sense of well-being. And now the Feast of Tabernacles is a time to celebrate all that. In fact, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were more sacrifices offered during that seven-day feast than any of the other festivals. And what is more, they started with lots of sacrifices, and then they went back, then they went down, down and down until the last day, there's only one. So it narrowed, you know, the animal sacrifices were many, but they narrowed down to the one which stood for the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. So Feast of Tabernacles points us from the many to the one, to Jesus. But I would like to take us to the heart of the Feast of Tabernacles rituals that took place in the time of Jesus. And these two or three, however you count them, take us to the very interior of the gospel in such a wonderful way. And so I'd like us now to, again, place ourselves in our imaginations at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. This is A.D. 30, the very last Feast of Tabernacles that he would keep on this earth. And this ceremony that happened every morning was called the water-pouring ceremony. And here's what they did. At the first dawn, every day of the feast, there was a long blast of the shofar. Now, I love shofars, so I brought the oryx here, which is another kind of shofar. And Josephus tells us that in Jesus' day, there was like a million and a half people that were camped on the hillsides around Jerusalem, as well as the people that lived with families in the home. So they were sleeping. They needed to be woke, woken up. So there was a, a blast of the shofar. As the people woke up and they looked down toward the temple, they saw a procession. 
they saw that a priest had taken a golden flagon, just about this size, holds about a pint and a half, and he was headed down the steep slope from, from the city, from the temple, down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem recently, they've just discovered, just this last year, they've discovered the very path that that priest took when he went down to the Pool of Siloam. And now you can walk on that very path. And so, let's go. The Levitical choirs are singing as we are walking down, down the steep path to, to the Pool of Siloam. And as he gets closer, he takes this golden flagon off of his shoulder and he dips it deep, deep down into the pool of Siloam and pulls out a special quantity of water. Now that's the best I can do for a magic trick, okay? You've <laughs> got to have some... <laughs> anyway, and as he lifts up this golden flagon filled with, filled with water, the Levitical choirs sing from Isaiah chapter 12. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. And he makes his way back up the steep hill up to the, to the, the altar. And he goes up the ramp of the altar, and there on the altar was a, another flagon. And this one, and I think I'm going to now move this so I don't inadvertently drop it. I think I'll put it back in my sukkah. Okay, so here was another flagon, this time filled with blood-red grape juice. And so the priest took the pitcher of water and the pitcher of grape juice, and he poured them into two spouts. And the water and the blood grape juice came down these two spouts and then joined in a single pipe and went down underneath the Temple Mount, and they've excavated that in the 19th century. They actually found this very place where the, where the water and the grape juice went. It flowed underneath the Temple out to the Kidron Valley, to the Kidron River. And in the Kidron River, it flowed all the way down through the wilderness of Judea and ended up at the Dead Sea, at the lowest spot on earth. And that happened every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And as the people saw this, they were, they were stunned. What is happening here? And they hoped maybe had something to do with the Messiah. But Jesus never said a word this whole week. So they went and asked their rabbis. I can imagine them saying, come on, rabbi, what does this mean? What does this ceremony mean? And the rabbi says, oh, don't you see? The water is, is standing for the, the water that was poured out of the rock and that took, brought, us, brought us water the time we were in the wilderness. That should be not too hard for you to grasp. They said, we get the water. What about the grape juice? And I can just imagine some of those rabbis saying, stop asking foolish questions. Because I don't think they knew. I don't think they understood. They were doing the ritual, but they didn't get it. And so in John 7, it says, the last day of the festival as the water was being poured and the grape juice was being poured, Jesus broke the silence. And in clarion tones, 
he called out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. Now, the rabbis had said, if you haven't seen the water ceremony, you don't know what it is to be happy. But we as Christians can say, if you haven't seen the meaning of the water ceremony, you don't know what it is to be happy. Because just a few short weeks later, Jesus would be hanging on a cross and crying out, it is finished. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And he dies. And then that Roman soldier takes the sword, takes the spear, and thrusts it into Jesus' side. And out of his side flows water and blood. And it flows down the cross. And it flows down, down, down to the very lowest spot on earth, to the very lowest sinner on earth, to you and to me, and brings us life. What an amazing story that tells of the gospel. But it's even better what happened at night. Because every night there was this grand light ceremony. Now, I don't know if you can imagine how tall it is up there to the top of our seminary chapel, but I don't think it's 75 feet. Would I be right in saying it's maybe 50, but not 75? But in Jesus' day, they had two big lampstands that stood in the courtyard of the temple. And there, on the lamp, there these two lampstands were 75 feet tall. And on top of them were these gigantic lamps. And every night, here's where PKs come in handy. If any of you are children of pastors, you had certain perks as well as certain stigmas. This was the perk for the PKs, the priest kids at Jesus' day. They, the teenage four of them got chosen to climb a 75-foot ladder with 10 gallons of oil in your hand and to pour it into those big, uh, those big lamps. And then they took the, what are you going to use for a wick for such a gigantic uh, lamp? Well, Jews like today, they don't waste anything. And so they took the worn-out underwear of the priests. <laughs> and they washed it real well. And then they wrapped it into big wicks and then a couple more PKs went up there and pushed in those, those wicks. And then a couple more key PKs went up with the giant torch. And according to the Mishnah, the eyewitness accounts, every city, every house in Jerusalem was lit by those giant lamps. And the people got this one. This is standing for the Messiah. He's called a light several times in the Old Testament. So Jesus is going to announce that he's the Messiah one of these nights. But you know what? Every night went by and Jesus was quiet. You know why he was quiet? 
because the Jews saw these as symbolizing the Messiah as the light of the Jews. And he was more than that. And so he waited until the very last festival of the entire week on the final day in the morning. Again, there were more blasts of the shofar, and I get one more chance to blow, to wake up the saints in the morning as the cock is crowing that last eighth day of the feast. And here we see the priests making their way to the east. And they stand with their backs to the temple. And they watch. The sun hasn't come up, come up yet over the, over the horizon. They know, have it exactly timed, so that just as the sun is about ready to come up, they say, our fathers worshipped the sun with their backs to the temple. But God, our eyes are on you. And as they turned around, the sun broke the horizon, and they could see the glittering gold on the temple and the dazzling marble walls. It was so spectacular. And at that moment, there was that clarion voice who through the entire crowd could be heard saying, I am the light, not just of the Jews. I am the light of the world. Amen. Well, Tabernacles was a great ceremony, but the ultimate celebration is not yet. Jesus was just the down payment of that celebration. But very soon, my brothers and sisters, there's going to be a camp meeting in the Promised Land. Amen. And the Day of Atonement's going to be over. And we're going to get to go to heaven for the thousand years and get everything straightened out there. And then at the end of the thousand years, the, uh, Revelation 21 says, the new Jerusalem is going to come down. And it says, John's going to look up and then the voice is going to say, the tabernacle of God is with men. And the feast of tabernacles can begin. And this time it will be not just water festival with a measly pitcher of water or even water flowing from the rock in the desert, there's going to be a river of water flowing from the throne of grace and glory. And the light ceremony is going to be there, and it's not going to be just lampstands in the court of the women or even uh, lights, uh, uh, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire out in the desert. It says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is its light. And a feast is going to be there. Not just a feast of what we can bring from this earth, but it says that God himself has set the feast. There's going to be that table miles long with the tree of life, with its 12 manner of fruits. And there's going to be the manna and the almonds and the figs and the grapes and many kind of fruit. And Jesus himself will say, come, my people, come into supper. I will gird you and I will serve you. Brothers and sisters, all that we could imagine is going to be there. There's even going to be the waving of palm branches that we don't have here in Michigan. But the one thing we need to settle is, are we going to be there? When the command, when the, when the great uh, 
angel blows his horn and calls forth the dead, I want none of us to be missing among the dead and the living. In fact, is it any wonder that the final invitation of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22 is given in the language of the Feast of Tabernacles? Jesus says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And he who hears, let him come. And let him as thirsty take the water of life, the water of that ultimate tabernacles. Let him take it without price. Will you, brothers and sisters, will you with me this fat feast of tabernacles on earth determine that we will be there without one missing? After the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Jews were forced out of exile and they were forced to celebrate this feast out in the, in the deserts or in the in the uh, prisons or pogroms or wherever, but somehow they managed to celebrate the feast. And when it was all over, they would turn to one another and they would say, next year, Jerusalem. Could I invite you to turn to one another? Wherever you are, if you, no one's there with you by your screen, just say it to God. By God's grace, next year, very soon, the new Jerusalem. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you've heard our desire. You've heard our, our commitment that as a result of being here at this tabernacle, we are determined we will not miss the one camp meeting in the great promised land. So come soon, Lord Jesus. We can hardly wait for the ultimate Sukkot to take place. And Lord, you've heard our, you've heard our, 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 heart, our heart's voice saying, we're not going to be missing. We're going to be there by God's grace. In, my, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.